Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. How are you doing, Haley? I'm good, Matt. I'm just enjoying this beautiful summer day and uh, yeah, excited to chat with you about one of my most favorite topics, confounding. Yeah, so we probably should explain that as people have probably figured out through the course of this season, we are recording things a bit out of order. So we have recorded a number of episodes already that we are, so the last episode that we released, we'd recorded quite a long time ago. We are now recording this, which will be released fairly soon. But then our guest for this particular topic was, again, something we recorded, you know, what, like six, seven months ago? Yeah, something like that. And so you'll, you, will, you will get the sense that things temporarily sound a little bit out of order, but epidemiologists don't care about temporality, so that's really not a big deal. Right, so how is, your, how is your summer going? You doing anything fun? Not yet. I mean, we're only about a weekend, and so I don't really have anything much to report. But actually, my kids are going to overnight camp for the first time this weekend, two out of three. So I am super excited, and I just hope it goes well, and then they can go for eight weeks next time. Okay, so the the real best, the, well, I mean, we love our kids, and we don't want them to go away, but... The real sweet spot is when all three of them go away. Yes. Yes. So I, you know, the, the, the little one is only I mean, 18 only months two, right but... now. So, you know. So next 18, year. Yeah. Basically next year. You know, I, I think once they're potty trained, I think that's legit to send them to overnight camp. Totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about you. What's going on? How's your summer? Yeah. You know, all, I am vacillating between this is the end of the world as we know it, given all that's going on in our country. We're, we're recording this, what, July 6th, so just after July 4th when Supreme Court and all kinds of challenging things going on right now. But, you know, then I have moments of, well, it's beautiful outside. We're having a very mild summer, which is surprising given climate given climate change. So I have, I have some some hope. All right. Well, that, that seems like a, a reasonable way to start off this episode that Matt has some hope, sort well, it's of, a, it's maybe. It's a good Good transition because I have I have some hope that we can actually do something about what we're going to talk about today, which is confounding. Today we are talking about chapter twelve. I didn't check. Is there a chapter thirteen in this book, or did they skip it like they do in hotels because it's unlucky? It is chapter thirteen, and it is measurement error, which is a fairly unlucky topic because basically you're screwed. Mm. So you know. Chapter 12 is okay because we're, we're just talking about confounding. And as you said, there's lots of methods to, to account for confounding in our okay, analyses. Okay, so, so that's actually where I want to start um, because I'm curious your thoughts. I know we've talked about this before, but I want to go back to it. Do you think we spend too much time in epi methods courses focused on confounding because of the three sort major sources of, of bias, confounding measurement error and selection bias. It's the one we most know what to do with. Yes. Yeah, so that actually, Matt, you know, we're on the same page as co-hosts because the very first bullet point on my sheet is confounding receives too much attention. Mm. It is a spotlight hog in the bias world. And 
I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think you're right that we have the most analytic tools to address confounding. And so from a teaching perspective, there's lots to teach about and you know, lots you can do about confounding, I think. I wish we spent more time on what in my head I've always referred to as the ugly stepsister of biases, which is measurement issues. I think we ignore the ugly stepsister, which is measurement biases, and we spend too much time time looking at the fancy confounding methods. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So now I'm trying, I need to, I, as you know, I need to come up with some sort of analogy for this, but I can't think of a good, a good threesome for which one of them is, you know, stealing the stage. You got any? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think Cinderella um, goes to the ball and, you know, everyone's looking at her and how beautiful she is with her prince. And the and two so, stepsisters And the are... two stepsisters, okay. I guess, would All be right. measurement and, and selection. But it doesn't work exactly because they treated Cinderella pretty poorly in uh, the movie. That's, that's a good point. So you're saying that measurement error and selection bias don't treat confounding poorly just because confounding does actually fit its foot in the glass slipper. Yes, yeah, yeah, basically the gla- something glass like slipper of data analysis, I mean. Of, of course, it fits quite nicely into paradigms of statistical software. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I as you know, we, we, we share this view. I definitely think that confounding is it's incredibly important, and I, I don't in any way want it to seem like we are dismissive of the important role that confounding plays in, you know, particularly observational epidemiologic research. Control of confounding is obviously critical, but I definitely think that we spend so much time on confounding because we know ways to control confounding, both in the design and the analysis phase of studies, and we know less about what to do about measurement error and selection bias, particularly in the analytic phase to to be able to deal with it. And so we do we do spend an inordinate amount of time on it. You know, it's a cyclical problem, right? Because there isn't as much teaching on measurement and selection issues and therefore there isn't as much use of analytic methods and training new folks to come up with new methods and and sort of it becomes this this spiral. We have pretty simplistic approaches, I would say, to look at some measurement and selection problems. You know, let's pare it down to this very simple DAG. And in this DAG, we can use inverse probability censoring weights to account for selection or, you know, some kind of simple measurement sensitivity and specificity analysis to account for measurement related issues. But these these don't come close to the complexity that we have for, for confounding related analyses. So now I'm going to I'm going to give you a quiz. You got a pen? Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got a pen. Yeah. All right. I, I need you to rank in order the following terms in terms of their their usefulness to you in terms of explaining confounding. Okay. Okay. Exchangeability. Mm-hmm. No unmeasured confounding. Mm-hmm. Weak ignorability. Ignorable, <laughs> yes. ignorable treatment assignment. Selection on observables and exogeneity. Right. So since I'm not an economist or working in the social sciences, I'm going to ignore those last two. Oh, you can't. You got to put those in order. Okay, so those have to be lower on my list because I, I don't, I don't think of confounding in those terms. For me, exchangeability ranks top. It really gets to the the core of exactly what you're trying to do when you are accounting for confounding. Phrased in the opposite way, if you do not have exchangeability, you have issues related to confounding. So that one is is by far my my favorite. No unmeasured confounding always trips me up. It's like one of those oxymorons, like jumbo shrimp. You know, I I can't. I, I always struggle with 
takes me a second to compute what no unmeasured confounding means. And what was the other? Uh, uh, weak ignorability and ignorable treatment assignment. Right. So actually, I think the way that you just, the order in which you said them is the rank order that I would give them. Wow. Okay. So, so the, I'm bringing this up because this comes directly from the text where they talk about these different terms for what in, in many ways are the same concept of confounding or lack of confounding. And they talk about exchangeability, no unmeasured confounding. Then they say in the statistic literature, this is sometimes referred to as weak ignorability or ignorable treatment assignment. And in the social sciences, it's referred to as selection unobservables or exogeneity. Now, I actually can't tell those last two, whether those are, are giving me no confounding or confounding. Is selection unobservables and exogeneity, that's no confounding? Those are no confounding terms? If there is exogeneity, that's, good. that's what, no, that's bad. Exogeneity is bad. I, endogeneity and exogeneity are two words that I can't even remember which is which, let alone relate to confounding very well. Okay, so exogeneity is when there is an arrow from a confounder into your exposure. So that would be an exogenous variable. Okay. And endogeneity is what I guess you would, if you think through a DAG, think about a mediator, right? Because your exposure is leading into a different variable, that, that variable would be endogenous. Anyways, that that's kind of beside the point. If you have <laughs> exogeneity, that's like saying you have a confounder. Okay, exogeneity makes me think of exoskeleton, and then I, <laughs> I start thinking of bugs. So it doesn't it doesn't work for me at all. All right, so we've got these these different terms, and so we, we can ignore for maybe even five of them here. Focus on the two that I think are most relevant, or at least most used in epidemiology, which are exchangeability and no unmeasured confounding. Now. I find that an interesting place to start because are those the same thing? I mean, exchangeability and no uncontrolled confounding feel to me more, you know, more more synonymous than does no unmeasured confounding. Because you can fail to measure something, and obviously if it's a confounder, then it's gonna be a problem. But you could also measure it and then do a poor job of controlling it analytically, and you'd still have uncontrolled confounding. I agree with that. It's not no unmeasured confounding. I think actually near the end of the chapter, they do a very nice job describing unmeasured confounding, yep. unknown confounding, and residual confounding, yep. which I think is related to what you're talking about with no uncontrolled confounding. Yeah, fair enough. Right? Where I go with this is, and this isn't this is not accurate, but it's the way I think about it. Exchangeability to me feels like a concept that comes out of counterfactual thinking. Whereas mm -hmm. unmeasured confounding or no unmeasured confounding or no uncontrolled confounding feels to me like it comes out of a more, I don't want to say traditional way of thinking about confounding, the way we think about it just as a, a variable associated with exposure and associated with the outcome and not on the causal pathway. That is not accurate. I'm just saying my mind sort of breaks them out because exchangeability feels like a word that for me came up when we started to learn about counterfactuals. Is your experience similar to that? Yes. And I think in part, we've talked uh, previously about the different eras in which we were trained. And exchangeability is a concept that was introduced to me early on in, in terms of causal inferences from observational data, etc. And so I view confounding in that framework intuitively. That's the first way I think about it, rather than maybe some of the you know different training paradigms or 
I was going to say older. I'm very harsh with my words today. Really? Older training paradigms where maybe that causal inference framework wasn't introduced as early on in the training. Yeah, and it wasn't in mine, but the causal inference framework did not come up really until my doctoral level training. So when we talk about exchangeability, the reason I say that feels to me more like counterfactual thinking, essentially what we're saying is we have two populations for which on average, the outcomes in those populations would be the same if there were no differences in the exposure. And so they are exchangeable. One population can stand in for what would have happened to the other population if they had not gotten the exposure. And it, you know, it feels to me like it comes out of the world of randomization, where we randomly allocate people into groups, one of whom is going to get the treatment and one of whom isn't. And those two populations are on average exchangeable because on average the same before I intervene. Thinking about randomization and why we use that in trials and what the effect of that is on our our groups that are created, I think that's the easiest, simplest way to to think through this issue of exchangeability. Yeah. And so, okay, so there are a few key points that I want to hit on from the chapter, and then I'll I'll see what you want to talk about. But for me, the first area that they get into that I find really interesting and a really stimulating discussion when it comes up in teaching students is the distinction between confounders and confounding. Is this, a, is this an area that you spend much time in your teaching and, and just thinking about epi methods on? In practice, when I'm doing an analysis, I don't, I don't spend much time thinking about it in that way. When I'm writing a grant or teaching about it, I do think there is a conceptual distinction that you need to explain when you're talking about confounding versus confounders. And I actually, typically when I'm writing... I try to refer to variables as covariates rather than confounders. Just because you have a variable that you're measuring, it could be a covariate in your your study, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is going to produce confounding. And so I, I prefer to try to stay away from the term confounder in my writing, if possible. Okay. And so what's the conceptual distinction you make between confounders and confounding? Confounding is a bias that distorts the true relationship between your exposure and your outcome. And that bias can be produced by confounders. So that's, that's how I think about it. Yeah. So one of the ways I like to explain this to, to students is at the end of the day, all that matters is confounding. Confounding mm-hmm, yep. is the bias. And confounding can be explained by different variables in your study. But at the end of the day, it's a it's a lack of exchangeability. It's a difference in your two populations before the intervention or the exposure or whatever it is you're interested in the effect of before that ever occurs, such that you didn't have comparable populations to begin with. What mm-hmm. they may be different on could be, you know, a number of different variables. And those are the factors that we think of as confounders. In in my thinking, confounders are important in that they explain the confounding, but their real value is as tools to remove the confounding, assuming we're using an analytic approach to remove the confounding and not something like randomization. But if we're if we're going to use an analytic approach, then the confounders are important in that they are tools to remove the confounding analytically. So that's to me that's the the really important distinction and that leads to the idea that confounding is what matters. There could be different sets of variables that get you to no confounding, 
whether we call those variables confounders or not, isn't really all that important. Yeah. And I think the book does a really nice job of outlining this idea of the minimally sufficient adjustment set, that there could be different variables that create this condition of no confounding. What we consider to be the minimally sufficient adjustment set is, is what we're most concerned about getting to. Minimally sufficient adjustment set coming out of DAGs essentially and saying yep. it's the it's a it's a set of variables that would suffice to remove all the confounding and no variable in that set could you take away and still remove all the confounding. And as you say, you could have different adjustment sets that get you to the exact same place that each of them removes all the confounding and they don't have, you know, completely overlapping variables in them. So there that's why to me it seems you know, sort of a waste of time to to focus on confounders. Not not in the sense obviously we need to know the confounders to be able to remove the confounding, but to 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 argue that one variable is a confounder or isn't seems to be misplaced because all that matters at the end of the day is do you have a sufficient set of variables to remove all the confounding. This also relates to something that I get frustrated with when teaching about confounders is this idea of the 10% change in estimate criteria for deciding whether or not you should keep a variable in your analysis as a confounder or not. This criteria is that if you include the variable in your analysis, does it change your effect estimate by more than 10% or less than 10%? And it's such a simplistic paradigm that I think it's easy to explain. Okay, does it or doesn't it? It's a very, you know, should I include it or shouldn't I include it? But really, any one confounder is not really all that important, right? You need to think of this set of confounders. And what happens when you include two of those variables or three of those variables or 10 of those variables? That set of confounding variables is much more important than thinking through any one variable and, and does it change my estimate 10%. Do you teach about this 10% criterion and where do you fall on using it in, in analyses? I teach it only in the sense of, uh, well, I probably teach it in two ways. Number one, I teach it, you know, I think students need to be aware that this is an approach that yeah. is, is used a lot and therefore they need to know what it is. But then I talk about all the problems with it. I mean, it, you can easily demonstrate examples of cases where a variable that is not a confounder would mm -hmm. change your estimate by you know 10% or more if it's a collider or potentially if it's a, an intermediate or you've got over-adjustment or bias amplification, there are cases where that approach fails. So I teach it so that they're aware of it, but then as a way to get into the potential problems with it. That said, we talk about in theory, if you draw out your DAG and you've got two different sets of variables that could get you to the same result, that tells you what the DAG would predict. But DAGs don't really deal with random error. And therefore, in your actual data set, you could get, you know, differences in adjusted results using those two different data sets. And so to me, it seems to me, once you've gotten to the situation where you've narrowed down a set of variables that are confounders and are not, or are potential confounders, I should say, and are not going to cause harm by adjustment, then using that 10% rule doesn't seem to me a terrible approach to go with. I'm not advocating for it, but it doesn't seem to me you know, overly problematic at that point. Let me ask you this. Do you have a set of variables in your substantive area that you always include in models? 
Is there anything that you, even if it empirically didn't make a difference in your results, you would say, I have to include this because when I go to publish this manuscript, if I don't include age, they're going to look at me. Yeah. They're going to look at me like I have two heads. That's a different situation though, because now you're in a situation where including those variables potentially widens your confidence intervals. But as I've said a million times, you know, I think our confidence intervals are already underestimates of the amount of error in a study. So I'm, I'm not, you know, that doesn't strike me as too problematic. Plus, in practice, it often doesn't actually make that much difference. So I, I really don't have a, a problem with that. It's a situation where you're going to include variables that are harmful that I'd be worried about. Yeah, of course. You, obviously, that, that would be a greater concern. But if you're going to be a strict dogmatist, da- dagmatist. Dagmatist. You're going to, <laughs> I like you're this. going to rely strictly on a dag. So you're going to, to be, decide, you're going to be dagmatic. You're going to be dagmatic about what to include. It seems like bad practice to include variables potentially that are not true confounders of a relationship. Well, so say more about that because bad practice, I mean, if it, if it changes the estimate, then we have to figure out why is it changing the estimate? Either my either my DAG is wrong or there is some other problem. There's, you know, measurement error, there is confounder I didn't didn't my DAG is generally right, but I've missed, you know, some other thing. Or we're just dealing with with random variation. That's one situation. But if it does nothing, if adding that variable to your model does absolutely nothing to your point estimate, slightly widens your confidence interval, what's the harm? The situations in which it truly does nothing are pretty rare because, and this is something I I think about a lot with regard to DAGs, you know, how often we simplify them and we don't, or I'll speak for myself, I don't always carefully think about the correlations between the variables that I'm including in my analysis and how that correlation between those variables is not properly represented in a, a DAG always uh, when meaning you're drawing it is, out. Meaning there is some common causes of those variables. Exactly. That you're yeah. leaving out. Well, yeah, but right. that's a problem with your your DAG, right? That's Agreed, not a problem yeah. with the analysis. Agreed. But I've seen these, uh, you know, memes or, or illustrations of what a real life DAG would look like. And there's like 10,000 arrows going into all sorts of squiggly things and that is not often how you see DAGs presented in a, in a manuscript. You see some kind of simplified DAG with a sentence, you know, so we understand these relationships. We've taken the liberty of simplifying this. And I've done that, you know, I'm not I'm not blaming people for doing that. But I, I just think sometimes we don't think through correlations between those variables as carefully as we need to. Okay, so first of all, episode title is going to be 10,000 arrows going into a bunch of squiggly things. <laughs> Second of all, I think you're right. If it matters to how we would do the analysis, then it's got to be in the DAG. Coming back to the, the question I asked about including variables, we always include age. You just can't, you know, whether or not it really makes a difference, whether or not it's really a confounder, age almost always gets thrown into the model in some way. There's very few variables that aren't correlated there's very few disease-related variables, there's very few lifestyle-related variables that aren't correlated with age. And so yep. what are what are the effects of including age on those other variables is just something I, I think about. And there's no single answer to it because it depends on the context that you're thinking about. This comes back to the idea, which I think they present very nicely in the textbook or how I perceive what they present in the textbook, which is confounders are presented as sort of this conceptual topic rather than an empirical topic, rather than a quantitative assessment of, of each individual confounder. We need to think through this 
concept of confounding rather than ind- empirical estimates of individuals confounders. Okay. So that goes back to some of the other point that you made that I wanted to bring up. So you you talked about this idea of confounders as a as a group mm-hmm. as opposed to just thinking about each individual confounder. Yeah. And and I'm I'm interested in this argument. I have seen really interesting conceptual examples of how a group of variables would come together to produce confounding that they wouldn't necessarily on their own. In fact, you know, you can you can demonstrate that in theory all your variables could be perfectly balanced between your populations, but the combinations of them are imbalanced across arms. And it's the imbalance in those sets of variables coming together that produces the the actual confounding. So in theory, yes. In practice, does this happen a lot? I mean, do we really think that that is what's going on much of the time that we're sufficiently worried about it, that we need to think of confounders always as a, as a, a group? And not just a set of individuals making up a group. I again, I, I think, I think yes, right? Because you care about the whole set of them together because their their impact on the exposure outcome relationship happens as a group. I mean, it can. I, I that's what I'm saying. I agree with you that it could, but does it? It's, it seems to me what you're you're sort of saying. Well, let's say I have four variables that I I consider as potential confounders. And each one of them, when I adjust for that variable, changes the estimate by 3%, such that I wouldn't consider any of them confounders if I was only focused on a change in estimate effect, which we we say we're not in favor of, but let's say we are. But if I put all four of them in, it changes the estimate by 12%. Is that what you're? Is that what you're sort of getting at? I wouldn't rely on percentage change markers that that you're talking about, but but that's the concept I'm getting at, which is that it's the joint action of all of them together. I, I like to refer to it as the. I think this came from Charlie Poole, but the death by a thousand paper cuts situation, where each individual one, each individual paper cut causes you know a little bit of discomfort, but if you have a thousand paper cuts, it would potentially cause a much worse outcome. And so, you know, the same idea is how I think about sets of confounders is that it's it's the joint action of all of them together and the interrelationships between them that is is producing the confounding that we are most worried about. I'm I'm really interested in this concept. I I'm not convinced yet, but I'm totally open to the idea and if anyone listening to this has any good examples or papers you can point to that would uh, demonstrate this. I'm totally open to being convinced. I just, it feels like in my experience, it hasn't actually happened in practice. But the there are a couple of interesting points I thought that get made in the chapter, one of which is they talk about a lot of ways that people think about confounders and debate the pros and cons. And ultimately, they come up with sort of their preferred approaches. But they talk about one way to think about a confounder is if it's useful in reducing the magnitude of bias, then we could call it a, a confounder. What's your reaction to that approach? Yeah, no. So again, I guess we've been recording this podcast together for a long time because we're on the same wavelength. I wrote, any variable that is useful in reducing magnitude of bias, X, bad. (laughs) Because (laughs) conceptually, this doesn't make sense to me because firstly, you never know what the true truth is. And so you will never know if you are reducing the magnitude of bias because you don't know what 
what the true estimate is that you're supposed to be getting. So when you're talking about the magnitude of bias being reduced, you don't know whether that's ever occurring. I didn't understand that. True, but that would be true of any definition of a confounder, right? We, we will never know whether a variable in, in reality meets the definition or we are including a variable that is causing bias. It's just our conceptual model, our, our DAG tells us that it, that it isn't, but it, you know, in theory, we could be we could be wrong. To me, but this again, this this went against sort of what I thought was the whole gist of the chapter, which is these conceptual ways of thinking through confounders and confounding, and then relying on something to reduce the magnitude of bias. It didn't make sense. It's it's like relying on the ten percent criterion. You know, it doesn't make sense to me to rely on a, a simple percentage change. Um, nor does it make sense to me to to rely on something reducing a hypothetical quantity that we never actually know what it is. Yeah, I, I, I see it different here. I mean, to me, this is to me, this is a theoretical way of just thinking about how we how we define what a, a confounder is. And so the fact that I don't know what the truth is in any real way, I mean, this is not saying that therefore I can define that a, a, a variable that I included in my model reduced the bias. Therefore, it was a confounder. Oh, it's so that's saying, how I interpreted it. I, I'm not interpreting that way. I'm just saying, you know, in theory, that's how we would define a variable as a, a confounder if it reduced the bias. But I, I, I don't love that because I think you could include variables that are not confounders that might reduce bias in some circumstances. doesn't actually define for me. It doesn't give me any theoretical understanding of what a confounder is. Okay. Yeah, I, I see that. I, I see where maybe I was over-interpreting potentially what, what they were saying in the that sentence. Sure. They say, you know, another way you could think about it is a, a variable is a confounder if it is always necessary to control the confounding. In other words, it's every sufficient set of variables you could come up with to remove the confounding. If it's in every single one, then it's a confounder. And to me, you know, that one also fails because, you know, again, a, a confounder is, for me, a tool to remove confounding. My conceptual definition of a confounder is much closer to the it's always uh, that, that it sorry, that it it reduces bias. It's just it has to be a specific bias. It has to reduce confounding, not just bias in the abstract. That one I think fails in my mind also because if you were to adjust for a variable that's a very close proxy to the the variable that you want to have, you could say it fails because we haven't included this necessary variable. But by including this proxy you're doing hopefully a good enough job. So I, I, I agree with you that I don't, I don't love that part, that definition either. Yeah, great point. And they do, they do talk about proxy confounders. So mm -hmm. a, a variable that, you know, if you've got your DAG and you've got a variable that is a common cause of your exposure and your outcome, and then you've got this other variable that has an arrow from the variable, we'll call it a confounder, to that variable, you know, that's what we think of as a, a proxy confounder. But I always find that, you know, sort of an interesting way to think about it because, you know, in reality, isn't everything we adjust for in a model a proxy confounder in the sense that it is a measured version of the thing that we really want to adjust for? And so there's, you know, our variable is always, you know, there's the true underlying variable, but then the measured version has an arrow from the true measured thing to the thing we measured, and there's some measurement error. And so it's, oh, everything's a proxy confounder. So a couple points on that. Firstly, when I think about it, I think of something like you want to adjust for actual blood levels of omega-3, but you don't have blood levels. So you ask people about how much fish they consume as a, as a measure. If you felt that omega-3 uh, measures 
was necessary, you could still probably do away with most of the confounding related to that variable if you had a, a solid dietary measure. So that's how I think of it. The other way I think about it is sort of in the framework of collinearity. You know, if you have two variables that are, are collinear or not perfectly collinear, but strongly correlated, including that them both in your model can, you know, cause wonky results to happen. And the same thing I think stands when you're thinking through confounders. If you had two measures that were measuring very close to the same thing, uh, one could be considered a proxy for another, and you wouldn't necessarily want to include both of them in your your analytic model. Yeah, I, I have to confess my, my ignorance. Collinearity is one of those things that I understand, and yet I don't totally understand. I mean, I understand I understand what it is and I understand why you wouldn't want to include two variables in your, and yet I don't totally know why it blows up my model. But anyway, I get your point. And so it does seem to me there is there is something there and this idea of proxy confounders are, I think they're really important. I think we use them all the time more so than we think, but certainly a proxy confounder wouldn't fit into the traditional, it's a, a, a cause of the exposure and a cause of the outcome type approach, but it would still fit into the confounding set in that it removes the bias and and they talk about that you know if, if it removes bias then certainly it's something we'd be interested in so to ask you a question where do you fall on different approaches for confounder control so the book describes um, adjusting for pre-treatment or pre-exposure covariates then it talks about adjusting for variables that are common causes of both the exposure and the outcome. And then it talks about disjunctive causes. The disjunctive cause criterion is where you control for a variable that is a cause of the exposure or the outcome or both. So those are the three options, common yep. cause, pretreatment, and disjunctive. Yep. I see some value in all three of these. Disjunctive criteria. That was a paper Tyler Vanderweel was one of the authors on that, but it came out a while ago and I was I was pretty convinced by that. In practice, it strikes me as you know, the goal is to really identify the confounders and so looking for the the common causes seems to me to make a lot of sense. I certainly put a lot of value in that approach. The pretreatment approach is controversial because if we just include everything pretreatment then there is the potential that we include things that are colliders and therefore we could create bias. And I that is absolutely true and there's a good reason to not follow that approach for sure. However, it seems to me there are situations where, you know, it, it seems reasonable. So people use this pretreatment approach with high dimensional propensity scores. So you've got a propensity score approach where you've got, you know, literally a thousand variables that you could put in as pretreatment covariates. And, you know, I can throw them all in as pretreatment covariates. That might be wasteful in terms of power, but if I'm going to boil them down into a propensity score, maybe it doesn't matter. The question becomes, what are the chances that one of the variables that I'm putting into that adjustment set is a collider for whom the parent of that collider isn't included in that thousand variables such that even though I adjusted for it, I haven't also removed the problem or that it isn't so many generations removed from the exposure that it really, you know, it's, its effects are, are minimal. And I, I, I think there's some value in that. I don't think it's a very principled approach, 
So I'm not going to argue for it, but I can see the argument, the logic when people say, you know, in these specific scenarios, probably not that big of a deal. What about you? I definitely fall in the common cause camp. That's how I think about it. That's what I look for in DAGs. I, I, that's how I was taught it. The other two seem a bit foreign to me. My brain just doesn't, doesn't work in that way. Not to say that there isn't a lot of merit to, to doing it that way. I just, I, I definitely am, am in the common cause camp. I would, I would, I would encourage all of our listeners if they are not already familiar with it to look into the disjunctive set approach because I, yes, I think I there's a lot it of yeah. um, it's Vanderweel and Spitzer there and, we go uh, we will include that uh, paper in our, our show notes for for interested readers a last topic I want to I want to bring up which is they also talk a fair bit about the difference between confounding and selection bias Mm-hmm. And it seems to me this all in in some ways stems from the Miguel Hernan paper, which, you know, define, originally defined selection bias as conditioning on a, a common cause. And then there was a lot of later on back and forth about there are certain circumstances where you can have selection bias without colliders. It seems to me it's probably not a overly common case, but it does prove the point that you can have them without colliders. But do you find this a a helpful distinction to make? Because traditionally, when we've thought about the distinction between confounding and selection bias, we think of confounding as something that happens whether or not we ever do a study. That, you know, confounding is something that exists in the population. There are relationships between variables, you know, risk factors like to party together. So, you know, people who... (laughs) who smoke are more likely to drink, but also people who exercise are more likely to have a, a healthier diet. So these things go together. And that's true whether or not I ever do my study. And so I have to deal with it. Whereas selection bias occurs when I do, you know, at the point of doing my study, it is caused by the way people are selected into or out of my study. Whereas the reframing of it as conditioning on a collider encompasses both that that sort of traditional way of thinking about selection bias as a something that happens in terms of the selection into and out of the study, but would also include analytic approaches where we analytically condition on a variable that doesn't have to do with the way people are selected into and out of our study. So what's your take on that approach? I really do think it's enormously important to distinguish those and use very careful language to make sure that we are appropriately distinguishing those two concepts. I remember as a doctoral student being confused about these when I was first being introduced to colliders and and DAGs and all that. And isn't this confounding? What's happening here? So I do think it's very important to distinguish between these two concepts. And I don't think we have done, as somebody who, who does a lot of selection bias research, I think we have a lot more work to be done reframing selection bias from just this idea of worrying about who gets into your study um, compared to thinking about selection bias as a collider and how those two concepts overlap with each other, I think, is an area that that needs to be uh, clarified in the literature. So let me let me push back a little bit, because I, I like you, I like the the I like the selection bias as conditioning on a collider, whether it be conditioning through actual selection or conditioning through analytic. I like that, but, you know, it does seem to me it has some limitations because, you know, like with the confounders versus confounding, you know, if if, if I condition on a, a variable such that I create selection bias or people 
are selected into my study in a way that creates selection bias through conditioning on a collider. If I have the variables that are the parents of the variables in question that are now associated because of the selection, and I can remove it analytically the same way I would remove confounding, does it matter whether we call it confounding or selection bias? Yeah, absolutely. There, Why? there is a there is a conceptual distinction in what you are removing. You are removing the selection bias because you created it by conditioning on a collider. Isn't this versus just... removing the confounding? I mean, everything we talk about, not everything, a lot of things we talk about are semantic differences, but they can still be important semantic differences that change our understanding of, of what we're talking about. Aren't these just silly arguments that epidemiologists have like at the end of the day if, if i can get to the right answer adjusting for a set of variables that i call confounders and you call selection bias and we get to the right answer either way what's the point like who cares whether we 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 have differences in what we call it it depends on how your dag is set. firstly of course it matters what we call it because for, this is an epi methods podcast everything is oh. about little, <laughs> little differences we are here you're talking to about, talk about this you're talking about job security here <laughs> right yes. but but also a few minutes ago you said something like if i have the parent of that collider included in my analysis um, you know, it doesn't really matter the adjust, you can adjust away the effect of that anyways, of, of that collider bias you created. But if you didn't, if you weren't already planning on adjusting for that parent, knowing that you created a mess, collider bias, and you can hopefully undo that mess by adjusting for the parent, then that is important information to have you may not have included that parent in your analysis. Otherwise, if you didn't know that that you had created the collider bias to begin with. So conceptually, it is important to have the distinction. Well, I, so I, I agree and I disagree. I mean, I agree with you that it's important. It's important that we understand colliders. That I, I think is is not in dispute, both within this podcast and hopefully outside the podcast, but I don't know about that. But that's different from whether whether once I have done it and I know I've done it and I fix it, whether it matters, whether we call it one source of bias or the other. Yeah, I will still say yes, it, yes, it matters. It's like if you have a variable, a poorly measured confounder and you have residual confounding mm -hmm. in your analysis, is that measurement error? Or is it confounding? Is that your right, question? That's, yes, that's that's the question. Yeah, I... I I we think, don't call that measurement error. We call that residual confounding. Yeah. And I and I would agree with you that I'm not sure I would come down on the same side of of things that probably the that most people would. But but my question still holds. Like, does it does it matter? Like if we know the pro we if we both understand fundamentally what the problem is and we're both thinking about how to deal with it, what 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 difference does it make what we call it? I mean, obviously, there's there's a branding exercise, and we agree, we both agree that confounding, you know, had a really good marketing team, and they <laughs> they got their brand out there in a way that measurement error and selection bias didn't, and so we think that's a problem. But I don't think the problem is what we're calling it so much as the problem is we're not addressing it. But if we're addressing it, I don't care what we call it. I mean, a, a couple points. You don't know if you need to address it if you haven't identified it and labeled it. Well, 
we've I'm saying we've addressed we've identified it. We're just you're labeling it one thing and I'm labeling it another. I think this is a very slippery slope dangerous topic because part of what I think one of the biggest problems that epidemiologists have and epidemiologists communicating and working with those in other fields is we have too, too much confusion related to concepts in our own field too much confusion. and we need to be very clear about what we are doing so by including as coming back to that parent of the collider that is conceptually different than including a confounder that has, you know, from a simple confounding DAG that has an arrow into an exposure and an outcome. I have not convinced you and you have not no, convinced definitely me. Not. No, And we will agree have to, to disagree. We will have to agree to disagree and, and wait to hear what our many loyal listeners have to say <laughs> on the topic. Okay. So last question I want to ask you, and this is really just a short one. Before we close out, do you, so there is this, this movement, Steve Cole, Jess Edwards, Katie Lesko, a bunch of others who unfortunately are not coming to mind that, that are pushing us more and more to think about all sources of bias as missing data problems. And that confounding, you know, is essentially a missing data problem in that what I'm missing is the counterfactual experience of the exposed group had they been unexposed and I'm imputing that, that information by using an unexposed, an actually unexposed population, and then I'm doing some adjustments to try and and actually do better imputation. Does that is that a framework that you like? This again comes back to exchangeability that we talked about earlier yeah. on in the podcast, and I do really like it. I think it really underscores what we are trying to do when we are adjusting for confounders and, you know, beyond all of the nitty gritty, what are you trying to accomplish by doing this? And the framework that they are advocating for about this idea of missing data is very helpful, especially, you know, when you're teaching these concepts. I I do too. I find it enormously helpful. And I think it's a, a, a really brilliant way to bring all these different concepts together and we can come back to it when we talk about other sources of bias. But I am curious to see whether it'll make it make its way into, into framing bias as we teach it or whether it's it makes a lot of sense to you and I because we know these concepts really well and so now we can fit it into the framework. But if you were to start off trying to teach this as a missing data problem, whether you would you would you would lose students or not. And I, I think only time will tell on that. When I am teaching exchangeability right from the outset, I have a slide where there's a little stick figure um, as my exposed group. And then there's a stick figure with like a dotted outline as the counterfactual group that I wish I had. And then a stick figure in gray, which is the substitute that I that I'm using. And so I think the framework that they are advocating is helpful right from the outset, aside from my much, much, much simpler version of stick figures, I think it can be taught and should be taught to students right at the beginning to help them understand these concepts. Cool. I, yeah, I'm I'm very much in favor of it. I do hope that it kind of changes the way that we think about teaching, but I do have some concern that students will get a little lost. So I'm, I look forward to seeing how that group is able to translate that into you know, simple bites of information that students can digest early on in their learning. But I do think it's going to, I do think it's going to change a fair bit of how we think about these things. There are tons of things that I was completely lost about when they were first introduced to me. And, you know, then you study it several times, you read it and read it and read it, and then it kind of begins to gel with time. So it's, it's not, it's not that they need to get it on first pass. A lot of these concepts are very complicated and, and most people don't get it on first pass. But I think 
trying to introduce it from the outset is important. Yep. All right. I think that's a good place for us to stop. Um, I have I very much enjoyed this conversation. I didn't find it confounding at all. <laughs> good one. So, so for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I want to encourage you to consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which just happened recently in Chicago, and I hear was very successful. Membership also gets you access to the SER library, where you can find great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. We think you'll very much like that podcast. They had a a recent episode with uh, Sandra Greenland that I thought was really interesting. Um, Also, a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and the guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. And other than that, just keep on moving ahead with your epidemiologic research and we will see you on the next episode or we will be heard by you. What what do I say? (laughs) We won't see you, but I guess they say on television, they say, we'll see you and they won't see you. You'll see them. I think we usually say, we hope you tune in to our episode next month. I know, but I wanted to, I wanted to vary it up. I thought people were getting bored and don't listen to the end because we don't say anything interesting. Well, clearly your ad-libbing has been tremendously successful. I agree. All right. Well, (laughs) thank you for listening, and we will be heard by you on our next episode. (laughs) 